the Inferno. It's an eternal poem, right? Except it changes dramatically. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast from Walking with Dante, and we are going to do an entire six lines, lines one through six. Wow, so much ground in Canto 8 of Inferno because we have crossed the divide. So, without any further ado, let me just read these six lines to you. Continuing on, I see that well before we got to the foot of that high tower, our eyes had already been directed toward its top, drawn by two flames that flickered up there, and another that answered from so far away our eyes could barely make it out. Here we go, the background. If you remember in the last episode and in the last pieces of Inferno, Dante and Virgil had descended to the fifth circle of hell in the middle of Canto 7, the first time we've ever seen that happen, a shift between levels inside of a canto. They descended to the fifth circle of hell. We got a very cursory look at the wrathful who were in the swamp of sticks, both the ones who were actively hitting each other, sucking each other, tearing each other apart limb by limb with their teeth, and also the sullen ones or the depressed ones who were down in the muck, who were carrying around their acrid fog. And we saw these two different Aristotelian ends of the sin of wrath, and then they... Virgil and Dante walk on around the circle and come to the foot of a tower. And here we come to these lines. And what happens? We back all the way up. This is why it appears that the comedy changes right here, and Inferno particularly, because it changes so much. And this is one of the only times that we see the entire poem back up and restart. It's all predicated on that word continuing on, the first words I gave from line six, that seguitando, to continue. I say that well before we get to the foot of that high tower. So we've backed up. And in fact, we're going to find out we've backed up so far that we're going to get across sticks in a boat. We're going to see the wrathful. We're going to see them in action, not just tearing each other apart, but one's going to try to get into the boat with Dante. What in the world is going on here? Boccaccio's answer, which is often the answer given, is that Dante started the poem and then left it perhaps in Florence and in exile. Someone had to go get it and bring it to him. I don't know. Boccaccio's a good storyteller. He's always got something up his sleeve. That sounds nice. We all know, anybody who reads the comedy knows that something changes here. If there's a gap and somebody had to go get the comedy or go get the manuscript of the Inferno, it sounds very modern, doesn't it? Go get the manuscript of the Inferno and bring it to Dante. Maybe that might be what's going on here. But even if they didn't do that, it does seem like things change. Why? Why does the comedy change? Let me offer you various mm, answers to this question. One has to do with when we met Plutus at the beginning of Canto 7. Remember, Plutus is sitting there clucking out his Pape Setan, Pape Setan, Alepe. And Virgil says, you know, don't, don't let anything he says hurt you. But what happens right there is that the pilgrim, or maybe the poet, describes Virgil as the genteel sage, the well-heeled sage who knew all things. 
Virgil is becoming a stranger, bigger character, knew all things. How could Virgil know all things, especially when he's referred to the coming of Christ as the coming of a hostile force? How can Virgil be the guy who knows all things? And furthermore, remember the Wheel of Fortune, and you have to watch out because she's hidden like a snake in the grass. I didn't point it at the time, but that's a direct quote from Virgil's Eclogues. That's from the third Eclogue, the 93rd verse of it. It's that Virgil is taking over the poem in incredibly maybe even troubling ways. Remember when we first met Virgil, and I told you that he padded his resume a bit? I was born subulio, and I'm from Mantua. And I'm like, no, I'm not really from Mantua. He's from <laughs> far hinterlands of Mantua. And no, he wasn't really born under Julius Caesar. No, not really. And it seems like he's padding out his resume a bit and Mm. And yet Dante says, oh, you know, you are Virgil, and basically gives him this praise that you are what created all the poetry that we ever do. So we have this character who's batting his resume, but Dante is hero-worshipping him, all at the same moment. I have a feeling, and this is supposition on my part, I have a feeling that the character of Virgil is part of what's causing the problems in the poem and the comedy is about to get much harder on Virgil. In these very upcoming cantos, in Canto 8 and Canto 9, I don't want to tell you the whole plot, but the comedy's going to get harder on Virgil. And it's going to get even harder on down the rows. Oh, and down the cantos in Inferno, Virgil's going to have to correct his own works. And it's, oh, it's really difficult, and you get the idea that the poet Dante is struggling with this poetic master, and finally, well, he's going to have to do what every artist has to do. He's going to have to put his master in his place, and it's not easy. It's not easy to watch. It's not easy to watch it happen. And I think as we come over this crest here, we're going to watch Virgil's character change. Virgil's going to get more human, which is harder to take, because after all, he is the great sage, Virgil. And Virgil's going to get not only more human, but more understanding of the human condition. When Virgil reaches Purgatorio and the mountain with the pilgrim, Virgil is going to give some unbelievable sermons about human nature. And these can only be put in the mouth of not a God figure, a hero, but a much more human figure. So I think well-heeled sage who knew all things gives us a hint that the poet doesn't quite yet know what his attitude toward Virgil is. And as we've come over this hump, we're going to see it start to change. And as we've come to this bit where the plot backs up and we rehear it, oh, suddenly Virgil's going to be a much different kind of character. I also think that, the, that, that one of the things that's happened is Virgil, by those kinds of references like Snake in the Grass, Virgil has started to take over Inferno. So much of Inferno, Plutus or Pluto and Cerberus and... Acarante and Count, so much of it is based on Virgil and the Aeneid. And from here on out, after the eighth canto, it's going to become much less about Virgil and the Aeneid and much more about Ovid and the Metamorphoses, about Lucan and the Pharsalia. 
the poem is going to expand out in dramatic ways. And it's going to, as it expands out, Virgil's role is going to diminish. But that's actually a good thing because the poem will start to deepen in incredible ways. Let me give you an example of this. And it's kind of a, uh, a, a funky example. Before I give it to you, I want to give full credit to Simona Marchesi, the, the great Italian scholar at Princeton, because actually I'm getting this from him and from his thoughts about what's going on here. Um, the first and second cantos of Inferno, remember them? The, <laughs> the waking up in the dark wood and the Virgil's arrival, and then we jump up to heaven in the second canto, and we get Beatrice and Rachel and the Virgin and Lucy. Remember all that stuff that's happening? Well, actually, what's going on in many ways there is Dante the poet seems to be rehearsing a classical model for poems of this sort. For example, in Virgil's Aeneid, we get a, a similar kind of prologue structure, that is, a dialogic structure between what goes on on earth and what goes on in heaven, and you always start with earth and then jump to heaven. We get that very structure, start on earth, then jump up and see what's going on in heaven. In the first book of Virgil's Aeneid, we get it in Ovid's Metamorphoses. We have a council of the gods that happens after we get a kind of initial introduction into the constant transformative power of nature on this globe. Or we get it, in fact, uh, in Lucan a little bit. We, he, Lucan changes it a little bit. We don't get necessarily a heavenly scene, but we do get a scene of divination after the initial plot point on earth. And that bit of going from earth to heaven, that's kind of the mm, the underpinning of the classical structure, and it's happening here around us. And Dante, as a poet, must find a way not just to rehearse the classics, but to write a poem that is his own, that is his understanding not only of the universe, but of poetry itself. And rather than being so beholden to Cerberus and Arcarante and Karen and classical models of the dialogue between earth and heaven as the opening of a major work. Rather than having all of that, Dante needs to find a way to write the poem such that the pilgrim's journey itself is central to what's going on, not Oh, how do I say this? Not classical models behind him. You know, listen, I was trained uh, in literary studies. I did my doctoral work in American lit. I was heavily trained to uh, laud, regard, praise the great canonical authors and others. The canon was breaking when I was in grad school, so the canon was expanding, getting bigger, great, and others. But, you know, one of the things I had to do when I became a full-time writer is I had to figure out how to jettison them all. And it was hard. I had to figure out how to jettison Dickinson and Faulkner and James. I had to figure out how to write in a voice that's mine and not just a parroting of their voices. The first things I ever tried to write oh, 20 years ago now, oh, 25 years ago now when I left academia, the first things I ever tried to write were so unbelievably turgid. 
<laughs> so unbelievably beholden to my literary masters. It was ridiculous. And I remember my husband, Bruce, who was not trained in literary studies, he was reading a short story I wrote this early on in our relationship. And he, you know, he's reading it and he's like, I don't get it, what's going on in here? And I said to him, oh my God, don't you see that that whole passage in that short story is a rewriting of Tennyson and it's coming out of this passage in, in Idols of the King and <laughs> this whole rationale for it. And he took his hand and went whoosh over the top of his head as if to tell me, right, this went, you're going right over the top of my head. I have no idea what you're saying. At the time, I was heavily offended. Now I know. He was right. Who cares? It's coming round out of Tennyson. Is this supposed to make me want to read it more? Not really. In the same way, Dante the poet has to figure out how to make the poem his, to pull it away from Aristotle and the golden mean, which has suddenly started to overtake the avaricious and the prodigal and the wrathful and the sullen, to overtake the classical models, to overtake Virgil, and to turn Virgil not into an icon, but into a human, a fallible human. It's been there all along. Virgil's initial introduction of himself, Subulio, I'm born in Mantua. It's been there all along. So it's not that the poem is being twisted in a completely new direction. It's just settling where it should have been. And this is what's about to happen to the poem in kind of amazing ways. There are other things that I think are going on here. Dante has got to figure out how to take more advantage of the vernacular. If he's going to write this poem in the vernacular, then he's got to take advantage of it. And he's got to pull his language closer to common speech. We saw this already with Virgil referring to the scrapping going on amongst the avaricious, the zuffa, a quest, the zuffa. We saw that happening and Virgil apologizing. I can't offer a nicer word for it. Well, that's a little bit of it. It's starting to take advantage of vernacular street speech. And Dante's going to have to figure out how to do this. And he will. It will. It will become, the vernacular will become more and more important to the actual functioning of the rhetoric of the poem itself. But that's down the road. That's over this crest. That's where we've come. That's how we're getting there. And maybe, you know what, maybe another reason the poem breaks at eight and starts again at Canto Eight of Inferno and starts again is because the last Canto of Seven was the first time we really saw clerics and popes and cardinals being punished in hell. Now, I always ask myself, is this part of the divide? That bringing this up, you know, is this pretty bombshell stuff when you put popes in hell? And bringing this up, is this what makes the poem hesitate and then restart again in a new way. After all, in 1309, the papacy has moved to Avignon. And again, Dante will never see the papacy back in Rome. And this breaks Dante's heart. It breaks, it almost breaks him. It, it, it comes through loud and clear in the poem that Dante feels the papacy is oh so ever broken. But maybe he has to figure that out. Maybe he's <laughs> he came to the avaricious, he saw popes and cardinals and clerics, and then he had to take a deep breath and start really trying to figure out his critique of the church itself and his critique of what's wrong with the papacy. However, let me tell you this. The sins are now going to change. We're going to back up 
we're going to see the wrathful. We're going to come back to sticks again. We're, as I said, we're going to get in a boat and go over sticks. This is all. We're going to see this fifth circle again with the wrathful and how they operate. But after this, the sins are going to change dramatically. And I think that it's important to see that this is the bit. By backing the plot up and starting it again, we're going to now move out of wrath finally into heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Many people are very mm, troubled by this. We seem to have been descending by the deadly sins or the mortal sins, right? We seem to have been descending down inferno by the mortal sins. And yet, we're going to lose the rest of them. Where are envy, pride, and sloth? There are no rings in hell dedicated to them. Many commentators over the centuries have tried to say, oh, look, they're actually almost people sunk down in the muck of sticks. Many commentators have said, oh, if you're looking for the prideful, and if you're looking for the envious, and if you're looking for the slothful, they're down there. And after all, we were given a clue about that with the fumes of depression or the fumes of sullenness, or I think I translated the acrid fog of these people. Mm. So perhaps there is a kind of sloth reference down there to those passive angry types. I don't see any envy and I don't see any pride. And I want to tell you, it bothers a lot of people that we don't get all the mortal sins and they so try to put them down there. In fact, this is still going on. Uh, the great critic Vittorio Russo in 1967 even posited that what is being punished here in the fifth circle is all the sins of, mm, he uses the word, tristitia. Uh, it's, it's more than sadness, like grief. And he says pride, envy, wrath, and sloth are all all the sins of grief. And so they're all here. It sounds good. It sounds like you're trying to shove the prideful and the envious in here, and they're not really in here. So the very nature of the poem itself is going to change. And from here on out, although we will see one more mortal sin, again, wrath, we're not going to see any more. Let me give you a quote to finalize this and sum it up. This is from Lino Pertile, the Harvard Dante scholar, and this is what he says about the comedy, and maybe there's something to be said here, and maybe there's also something that we can pull back a little from here. He says, the comedy is one of the most fragmented and at the same time most unified of the great poems of the Western tradition, fragmented in that so much of it is composed of the compelling stories of real as well as mythological and imaginary characters, unified in that the powerful macrostructure of Dante's journey is capable of absorbing and making sense in both narrative and moral terms of the multiplicity that threatens its very existence. Oh, listen to that. The multiplicity that threatens its very existence. I think that that's really important to hear because there is a way that you can see the Sermon on Dame Fortune. You can see this break here and the restarting of the plot. This is all part of the fragmentation of comedy itself into many different parts. And you could argue, and many do, um, the great Italian philosopher, essayist, critic Croce, again, says that the structure is nothing but, you know, what the beautiful blooms of poetry hang on in the comedy. You can make that claim. 
But I would say that actually what's going on here is a poet working out the terms of his own discourse. And as things change here, post the break in Canto 8, we're going to watch this poet do some amazing things that pull this up from a collected series of thoughts. Oh, here's Dame Fortune. Oh, here's this. Oh, here's that. A collected series of thoughts into a unified structure. And I think we're going to then be able to look back on some of what came before and see the seeds of the beautiful edifice that gets built in it. For example, as I tried to argue last time, well, I guess two times ago, Dame Fortune is the place you have to start in your understanding of what is central to how the universe operates, but it's not the final position. It may have existed in the original seven cantos of Inferno as a fractured sermon that's just dropped down about Dame Fortune, but in the longer run of comedy, it's going to be subsumed into a structure. And Petile says it's the structure of the journey of the pilgrim. It may be more than that. It may be a philosophical and rhetorical journey structure that's not just the pilgrim's personal journey, but more of journey of philosophy, of rhetoric, of finding the language that will finally attempt mm, to convey, well, here comes a word that doesn't fall out of my mouth very easily, truth. Finding that language may be the core unifying functionality of the comedy itself. But to know more about that, come back. We're going to start the raffle again, just like Dante the Poet does. We're going to go back. We're going to find out how you got across sticks. You don't just walk around a rim. Come on. You got to cross it somewhere. You don't just follow an arc around the foot of a tower. What in the world? We got to get across this thing. We got to find out who's in it. We got to have a sinner appear before us, just like Francesca and Chaco. We got to go back to that idea that the sinners themselves best voice their own concerns better than having Virgil as just our guide who points out who the avaricious are and points out who the wrathful are. Better than that, we don't need a museum guide. We need to listen to them, and we're going to get one. So subscribe, like the podcast, connect with me on Twitter under my own name, Mark Scarborough. I'd be glad to talk with you there more about this episode or other episodes. If you follow me, I promise I'll follow you. And furthermore, you can just hashtag our discussion, Walking with Dante, and I'll see it on Twitter. In any case, please, let's connect and let's follow the comedy as it backs up its plot, starts through the wrathful again, and starts to become, well... Have I said it enough? The greatest work of Western literature. Mm-hmm.